So we're resuming our series in Romans. We've taken a break from John, and we've now resumed John, and now we're resuming uh, Romans. And uh, we, we entitled this series, The Greatest Letter Ever Written, and it really is. And you've heard the testimony after testimony how the letter of Romans has been used in people's life to shape them and to form them and to help them understand the wonders of the gospel. And we come tonight to what has been described as probably one of the hardest passages within the book of Romans. Not hard because it's, it's, it's really complicated, it's just densely argued, but it reveals the most glorious truth, the truth that you and I need to know if we're going to live the Christian life. Now, so far in the book of Romans, just to remind us where we've been, we've looked at the bad news. Paul's taken us down on the deep descent into human depravity. Chapter 1, verse 1, uh, 18, um, through chapter 3, verse 20. We are all people who fall short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile alike. We are objects of God's wrath. We are under his condemnation. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 11, Paul has set before us the glorious good news of the gospel, the, the amazing news that because of what Jesus Christ has done, in particularly in his life, death, and resurrection, we can be made right with God, justified, declared righteous. And Paul in chapter 5, he took us to the heights of the love of God. God demonstrated his love for us in this whilst we were sinners. Christ died for us. Well, this evening in chapter five, Paul's going to continue on this mission of helping us appreciate both the, the depth and the height of the bad news and the good news of the gospel. But he's going to go even further and he's going to help us appreciate the, the length and the breadth of the gospel. You see, Paul knows that if we're to live the Christian life, we need to understand the gospel in big picture. We need to understand our history in relation to Adam and, into, and in relation to Christ. This won't just help us make sense of life in general, but it will help us make sense of life in Christ in particular. Now, you might remember that in chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 11, there was a lot of rejoicing. Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in the midst of your suffering. Rejoice in and through the Lord Jesus Christ because of our benefits package. So Paul has just been in this, in this um, section where he's been devoted to constant celebration because of Jesus Christ. Now he moves back to argumentation. And from verse 12 to verse uh, 21, he's laying before us this argument regarding the big picture of the gospel. And key to his argument is understanding there are two men, and there were two acts, and there were two outcomes. And so we're going to uh, look at these three headings, two men, two acts, two outcomes. Now I'm going to break from my normal pattern of preaching. I know I just walk through a, ver a section verse by verse. I'm not going to do that tonight. I really want us to just get a hold of what Paul's saying in terms of the theology. Uh, just look down at verse 12. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, at that point, we expect Paul then to give the comparison just as, but he doesn't. We get a parenthesis, we get a dash. And so from verse 13 through verse 17, Paul goes off on a sidebar argument to unpack what he means by all sin there at the end. And he resumes his argument in verse 18. So, so verse 12 really should be right next to verse 18. This is where he, he wraps it up. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so what I want to say is that Paul, that's his simple argument, it's death in Adam and it is life in Christ. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, when it comes to looking at this section, we need to understand that the reason this section is so key is, is because it helps us make sense of chapters 1 through 5 and 11, and it's really going to help us make sense of what Paul's going to say in chapter 6 through 8. Such a key section. If you're going to grasp union with Christ, you need to grasp your union as well to Adam. I don't know if you like uh, reading history books. I've, I'm often mentioning history, but Andrew Marr, he, he wrote that, The History of the World. He's done a documentary series and starts with Stone Age, Bronze Age, Syrian Empire, Babylonian Empire, uh, comes right through to Christ, the days of Christ, then continues through Roman Empire, uh, and, and comes right up to Germany, Nazi Germany, and ends with the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. A fascinating history, marking all the great events of history, but does not compare to the history that we're told here. If you want to understand human history, you've got to understand what Paul says here. There are only two individuals in one sense that really matter in history, and that is Adam and Christ. These two men, Adam the first and Adam the last. Um, and Paul wants us to know that these two men, there's something that they have deeply in common. They're not isolated men. These are men who stand as the heads, as the fathers of humanity. Adam, the father of all of humanity. Christ, the father of the new humanity. Now, the theology that Paul unpacks here is what we call federal theology, federal headship, representative theology. And what's really interesting about this theology is that it can jar with Western-minded people because we, we tend to think in very individualistic terms. So we can find that theology that Paul presents here is not just strange but repugnant. Um, in the West, we think that every man or woman should rise or fall according to their own actions, their own decisions, their own abilities, generally speaking. But the Bible's approach here, as we see and then throughout, is covenant headship. And covenant headship of Adam and the covenant headship of Christ. Just this past week, I was watching the television and it was the 
coronation of King Charles III in Scotland. And if you saw any of the scenes of it, you saw there were some Scottish protesters saying, not my king. Not true. They can protest that, they can make that declaration, but they can't change this fact. Constitutionally speaking, King Charles III is the head of our state. There's no, you can't change that. It might, you, you can't change that right now. You can't, you can't state that statement and say it's true. He's not your king. He might, you might not want him to be your king, but constitutionally speaking, right now, he is your king. We, we understand this whole concept of federal headship um, in different ways. So, so biblically speaking, think David Goliath. You've got the Israelites on one side. You've got the Philistines on the other side. Goliath represents the Philistines. And Goliath is taunting the brothers of David and all of the Israelites. Come on, who's going to fight me? And the victor and the loser, or the victor takes it all, and the loser means it lost for the nation. And you know David stands forward, and you know what happens with his sling. He defeats Goliath, and Israel are victorious. Or you think of the great, you think of the high priest. He goes into the holy place on behalf of the people. He acts as a representative, as a head. Now, what's really interesting, and one of the reasons we find this so repugnant, and let me take you back to your school days. Do you remember, you know, you were in class, and every class had one, a class clown. There's always one guy in your class or one girl in your class that misbehaved. And often it would get on the nerves of the teacher such that they would say, because of the misbehavior of this class, I'm keeping you all behind in detention. And inside, everybody's furious. Why am I getting kept behind? Why am I having to experience detention? Because of their actions. Why does their actions have to have consequences for me? And there is something in us. We don't like it, especially with a Western individualistic mindset, when someone's actions has negative consequences for us. And so there might be some of you here, and as you're hearing this theology, federal theology, you struggle with it. But let me just say the flip of it. If you were to go home tonight and you were to discover one of your relevant your relatives died and left you an inheritance of a million pounds, I bet you would not be complaining that you are connected to someone and the significance of their actions is having a positive impact on your life. And the reason why it's so important for us to understand, we, we might struggle with the fact that Adam is our federal head. But that struggle says more about us than it does about anything else. You see, some people really struggle that Adam was our federal head because we want to say, I wish I had the opportunity to be in the Garden of Eden. I wish I had the opportunity. Why did it have to be Adam? We didn't elect him. We didn't vote him. But can I just say something? That way of thinking is a bit foolish because who chose Adam to be our federal head? God. God didn't just choose them. God created them for that very purpose. Does God ever do anything that's wrong? No. God's design, God's creation is, is perfect, and he chose Adam to be our federal head. And see, when you understand that we are, we are all in Adam, and we might hate it because the consequences of his one act, negative consequences for us, brought sin and death into the world, as verse 12 says. When we appreciate that, 
and we might find it frustrating. Think of the alternative. Think of the, the, the opposite side. Jesus Christ was chosen to be the federal head of the new humanity. And his one act of obedience is what brings us great blessing, glorious gospel blessing. So yeah, we're represented in Adam who failed in the garden, but reckon with the fact that God as well has us represented in Christ who represented us at Golgotha. So two men, Adam and Christ. Now just one thing to point out about Adam is our union with Adam is a physical one. We are all of Adam's descendants. We, we, we are absolutely convinced that there is a historical Adam and we are all of his descendants. But there is a difference between Christ. Our union with Christ is not a physical one in, in that sense. We come to be united with Christ by faith. It's a spiritual one. We, we are united to Christ when we are born again, when we believe in him. And that's so important for understanding. So there's the two men. Now let's think about their two acts. And what, One of the things that Paul does labor in this section to show is their two acts are very different. Um, Paul uses different language to describe the, the act of Adam. He calls it sin, verse 12. He calls it trespass, verse 15, um, again in verse 16. Um, and, and the idea of trespass there is a, a self-conscious breach of God's law. Adam, his act is that when he stood in the garden as a representative in something we call the covenant of works, in that probationary period, Adam failed. He knew God's law. He knew that he should have not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he failed. He transgressed. He trespassed. He sinned. He was disobedient. Contrast that with what Paul says in this passage that Christ did as our federal head. He obeyed. He did one act of righteousness. He, he was the one who was obedient in all things. It's, it's, it's glorious. His, his act is an act of perfection. It's of one of obedience. It's one of righteousness. And, and the reason it's so important to understand these two acts, is, especially the first act, is it answers so many of the biggest questions of life. I think there's nine billion people on planet Earth right now. If we were to... Um, look at every single person alive who is um, of the age where they can talk and think, and we were to ask them, are you perfect? And they were to be dead honest. I think every single person would have to admit, I'm not perfect. You know, that's observable. You see it in children. Uh, you never have to teach children to do bad. I know all about that right now. <laughs> Objectively, observable, children adults, all of us, every single one of us are sinners. What's the explanation? We all sinned in Adam, and so sin and death spread to all of Adam's descendants. We all die. 
The rich die, the poor die, the intelligent die, the unintelligent die, young die, the middle-aged die, the old die. Why? Because of Adam. Because we all sinned in Adam. And sin entered this world. And the consequence of sin is death. And death is spread to all. Some of the biggest questions we have in life, the explanation is given to us. It is because of Adam's one act. Flip it the other way. And this is where it's so glorious. It's because of Christ's obedience. It's because of Christ's one act of righteousness. It's because of his 33 years of obedience, even obedience to death on the cross, that he has brought about the reign of life. He's brought about justification. That means we can be made right with God. He's atoned for our sin so that we no longer are under condemnation, but we're under God's favor and we're under the reign of grace. So under Adam, we came under condemnation because of his act. But in Christ, there is, if you're in Christ, there is now no condemnation because of what he has done for us. So two men, two acts, two outcomes. It just, if, if you just look down, it is worth noting that verse 12 says, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You know, when it says that Adam's one act brought death, it, it means two kinds of death. Remember when he sinned, he, he, didn't immediate, he wasn't immediately struck down by God and killed. He was expelled from the garden. That is, he died spiritually speaking. He was separated from relationship with God. But of course, it also meant that he did, physically speaking, die. If he, if he had obeyed, if he had obeyed God, he would have known life and life for all of his descendants and the blessing of God. But instead, it was sin led to death and death for all, spiritual death. And so by nature, we're all born spiritually dead. And by nature, we all die. But then contrast it with the outcome of Christ's act of obedience. Because of Christ's act of obedience, we have life. We reign in life. You know what's incredible about Christ's act of obedience is that as the head of the new humanity, we're dead to sin. And we're alive to God. And you'll never make sense of that reality unless you understand union with Adam and then union with Christ. Being united to Christ means that you are dead to sin. And you're now alive to God. And you're now an object and a recipient of God's grace. Your sin may abound, but his grace abounds all the more. You're safe and secure in Christ. And so I just need to ask us this question tonight, just as we're looking at these Three big ideas, two men, two acts, two outcomes. 
Are you all in Christ? Are you all in Christ? Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to know him, come to receive him and receive the free gift of his grace? Because what the incredible thing about having, of leaving being in Adam and coming to be in Christ is that it's even better than the state of the first Adam was in in the garden. It's even more glorious. It's in a whole different level. And, and, and the reason I can say that is because all of Christ's life, his perfect life, all of the outcome of Christ's death, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection and ascension to the Father, all of it is yours and mine if you are in Christ. And that means you're faultless. You're holy and blameless in him. That means you're safe and secure. There's nothing that can change your standing if you're in Christ. That means there's no more probation because he, Christ, came and he stood in our place. And where Adam was a failure, Christ was a victor. And, and, and if you want to understand not just life in general, but if you want to understand your life in Christ in particular, if you want to understand the Christian life, you've got to understand what does it mean to be united to Christ? And when we come to Romans chapter 6, this was all about what does it mean to be united to Christ? It means to be united to him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It means his life's your life. It means his success is your success. It means that you and I will go on and live with him and we will reign with him in life. And there is no more good news, more glorious news than comprehending the length and the breadth of our union with Christ. I think that for most of my Christian life, right, I heard this phrase, in Christ. I heard this phrase, union with Christ, and I never really got it. And then the penny dropped the day I understood what it meant to be united to Adam. And all that was lost in Adam wasn't just regained in Christ, but even greater standing in Christ. And then I've realized that to be united to Christ, to have Christ as my covenant head, means that God sees me, he sees Christ. And that is, brothers and sisters, the most glorious truth in all the world. And so in many ways, I, I just set all of that up because as we come to chapter 6 now and 7 and the weeks that lie ahead, we can now begin to unpack what is the Christian life and the Christian life is being united to Christ. And so I'll ask it again. Are you in Christ? Are you in him? It's the most glorious place to be, united to him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are so gracious and compassionate to tell us our history and to tell us redemptive history, to show us the scope of it, to show us the reality of it, to show us the wonder of it. Lord, we pray that we would come to grasp our union with Christ. We thank you so much for the second Adam, the last Adam, we thank you for his victory and his triumph, for his life of obedience. 
for his act of righteousness done for you and for us. We pray, O oh God, that as we seek, that as we um, go forth from here, even this week, to live out our Christian life, we would see that our life is in Christ. We are hidden with Christ. We are in Christ. Oh God, please, in the days that lie ahead, would you begin to unpack and help us understand all that this means for us. And God, we pray that even as we live with this understanding of what it is to be an Adam, that we would even live in this world more aright. We, we realize that we live in a world where many are still in Adam. Many are still in sin and many are still in death. Alive to sin and dead to God. And so we pray that even with that understanding, that it would shape just the way we love our neighbor, the way that we proclaim this gospel, that their greatest need is to come and see Christ and to hear of what Christ has done. So we pray that you would fill our minds and hearts with who Christ is and what he's done so that we can go forth and tell. And it is in his precious and glorious name we pray this. Amen.